0: Well, thanks for being here. My name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here, and I want to add my welcome to Dan's. Um, we are grateful that you would join to worship Jesus with us. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1. We have begun a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. As a church, we typically preach expository or preach through, Bible, through the Bible verse by verse or scripture by scripture, passage by passage. And so that's where we are at today. We are just midway through, most of the way through verse, uh, chapter 1 of Corinthians. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians and we will read God's word for us today. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, discerning of the discernment, discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the one who's the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let, let's pray. Now, we, we need your word to penetrate our hearts. We need your word to enliven our minds, to open up our minds. We need your word to open up our eyes so we might see you. God, I pray that we would understand the simplicity of the message, Lord, and this message would transform the way we think, the way we act, the way we feel. God, we pray this by your Holy Spirit, relying on your Holy Spirit to give us the grace to, to hear your word. And Lord, give me grace to preach, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I once, I think I've told the story before, I once had the privilege of getting to, to meet with the president of George Mason University. It was a place where Julie and I uh, went for school back in the 90s. And um, he had grown up in the depression that the president of the university had. He saw education as his escape from poverty. And he had built a life for himself. He was credited by the Washington Post with transforming the the little university we went to into this burgeoning center for innovation, for research with a national profile. It became the, the largest research facility in Virginia. He established all kinds of academic programs, 34 different new programs, 11 doctoral degrees, and he started the School of Law for George Mason. He was regularly consulted by those in power. He was influential in D.C. circles and... Kind of at the height of that, about a year before he retired, we we met for lunch. And we met up in his office, we talked about life, we talked about what mattered in life, we talked about the large questions of life and what did he think was the answers to man's problems and he didn't have any answers. This was at the peak of his academic career, towards the end of his career. And so I shared the gospel with him and afterwards... He responded with this kind of condescending smile, and he said, well, you know, Matt, the great Nietzsche, who was an existentialist philosopher, he said, well, the great Nietzsche once said that that you have to realize that when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss gazes into you, as if that was kind of the, the end of the matter, and that was something deep to say, and really, it was not wise at all. It was meaningless. It was nothing. He had no answer. The gospel, it seemed silly to him. It, it seemed like it was really just for those who really didn't understand. And so at the end of our conversation, towards the end, he, he didn't believe. And, and I remember the conversation because it was jarring and it, it was patronizing. And, it, and he seemed to be condescending and talking down because I really didn't understand life. I didn't understand philosophy. I didn't understand the deep things of life. And so at the end, I said, well, how, how can I pray for you? I believe that God answers prayers. How can I pray for you? And he said, well, could you pray for my golf game. And he says, You know, if there is a God, could you pray that, that He helps me get that little white ball into that little hole so that I can have an impressive golf game? And I, I can't even remember what I said. I might have said sure. Uh, and and I, was, I was bothered, I was baffled that the, the depth of our conversation really kind of dissolved or came down to just he wanted help with a golf game. He wasn't concerned about the answer that, that I was bringing. He wasn't concerned with the answer that Jesus was bringing because the word of the cross seemed like folly to him. It seemed like foolishness, utter foolishness to him. And really that's what the Apostle Paul here, he is telling us from, uh, to the Corinthian church, he's, he's telling them that the, the word of the cross, it's, it's folly to those who are perishing. It's, it seems completely ridiculous. It's, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. And we, we understand that because we've encountered that. If you're a Christian for long, if you've been a Christian for long, you have encountered those who, who believe that, that this whole Christianity thing is really stupid and it's really just meant for stupid people. And actually, Paul uses words here that, that he says that the word is it's foolishness. And the words for foolishness, it comes from the word that we get the word for moron. It's moronic. It seems moronic to people. Paul was encountering the attitude in Corinth that the gospel, it's really for morons, it's really just a moronic message, it's overly simplistic, it's, it doesn't seem to be very smart, it doesn't seem to be very wise, and if, if you've encountered other people before, you've encountered that pushback, and, and maybe you're like me, maybe that actually keeps you from wanting to share the gospel because you don't want people to think you're silly, you don't want people to think you're foolish. And so a lot of people feel that way, and and they've come up with all kinds of ideas and ways to repackage the gospel, right? Because, well, we have to make it appealing to the masses because this whole idea of putting our trust in somebody who died, it doesn't seem very appealing. And by the way, that message of the cross that says that not only did Jesus die, that that we are called to take up our cross and to follow him in death and dying continually, regularly, that, that doesn't really, that doesn't appeal to many people. And so you hear the gospel repackaged. And you hear it put into different terms, like, well, you've got a God-shaped hole in your heart, and he wants to fill that hole. Well, that, that might be true, but really that's not the message of the cross. Or God came to meet all your deepest needs, and, and while he does, that's not the message of the cross. Or God came to, to make your life better and healthy and wealthy and wise, and that sounds good, but the reality is that often he will say, I want you to be poor for me. I want you to die for me. I want you to be nothing for me. That's the message of the cross, but sometimes we feel like that's a foolish message, and it's not going to appeal to many, right? Anybody here ever feel that way? You ever intimidated with sharing the gospel because you feel like it's a foolish message? We want to repackage it. We want to put it in different ways. We want to come up with all kinds of arguments, and and that's why often we, we resort to coming up with, apologetics and apologetic reasons for why God exists. And, and those are good and there can be reasons to take down barriers. But in the end, we really have the message of the cross, which seems like folly doesn't seem impressive. It seems weak. It seems silly. After all, we have a Savior who died. We have someone who everyone left. We have a Savior whose friends deserted him in the end. The crowds walked away from him. He was not successful the cross seems foolish. And Paul says, the word of the cross, it seems like folly to those who are perishing. And what he says is that there's really two classes of people. Those who are perishing, and then he says later, what I have half of the sentence, those who are being saved. But for those who are perishing, what he's saying is, anybody who does not believe in the message of the cross, they actually are in the constant state of dying. They're, they're dead already, but they're, they're perishing. They're continually perishing. They're dying, and their, their end result is death. And so it seems like folly because they can't understand the things of life. And Paul talks about this. He says, There's nothing new. He says that's what, that's what God has always said. And he, he quotes Isaiah in verse 19. He, he quotes actually Isaiah 29, 13. And, and it's important to know the context for that quote because in the context of that quote, Israel is in trouble. Or Judah is in trouble. They have... They are surrounded by enemies and they are worried they're going to be overtaken. They're going to worry they're going to be carried in captivity. And so instead of doing what Isaiah and the prophets have, have talked to them, are repenting, putting their trust in God, turning to God, what they do is they turn to the very place that God called them out of to never turn back to. They turn to Egypt because they're thinking, hey, what seems wise? We need a big ally. And you know what? God doesn't seem like he's really helping us right now. So we need a big ally. We need somebody to protect us. We need to, to employ worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom and say, "Well, let's, let's come up with allies. Let's make alliances. And let's come up with pacts and have a plan. And so they make all these plans and alliances. And they lie themselves with Pharaoh and instead of trusting in God's word. And so God's response is in Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. He says, and the Lord says, because the people, they draw near to me with their mouth. So they say they love me, but they're not really trusting me. They say they love me, they they draw me near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He says, and their fear of me is just a commandment taught by men. They've heard it, but they're not actually fearing me by their hearts. They're not actually following me from their hearts. They're not actually trusting in me. What they're trusting in is their own wisdom. And so he says in verse 14, he says, Therefore, it's what Paul quotes, Behold, I will do again wonderful things to this people, and wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. God reveals where people really put their trust. God destroys the wisdom of the so-called wise. And in the end, the people were actually carried away into captivity because they put their trust in man's wisdom. And Paul says, that's what it's like today. People put their trust in man's wisdom. People put their trust. They've always had the problem of putting their trust in what they can understand, what seems reasonable to them, what seems like something that seems that they would accept what seems acceptable to them. And that's where people put their trust today too, right? We put your trust in what what seems reasonable, what seems wise. We put our trust in education. Maybe if we educate people enough and we inform people about the problems of this world enough, if we tell people about all the issues that plague mankind, if we inform and educate, maybe then that will change things. Well, that hasn't worked out too well in the last couple thousand years at least. So is the... Answer to poverty, education is the answer to racism. Education is is the answer to the things that divide us. Is is it just acquiring more knowledge? Is that working into out well for us? You see, Paul is saying that's where all the world seeks answers is through wisdom of the world seeking an explanation other than God because mankind can't bear the idea that they have a creator that they are responsible and accountable to and that there is only one way to relate to them. and That's how he says. Instead, mankind says, no, we want to come on our own merit. We want to come on our own ability. We want to solve our own problems. And mankind has continued to degrade and be unable to solve our problems. Let me ask you, what, what philosophy has solved any of our problems today? What ism has solved any of our problems. I don't care what ism you pick. If you pick some of the older ones, if you pick some of the newer ones, socialism, capitalism, whatever ism you pick. What, what philosophy of thought do you want to pick that you say, well, this philosophy is going to be man saving grace? Now, it can also be revealed what we're really trusting in when, when we react against one of those isms and say, no, this is the, really the only way. And if, and if we lost If we lost our democracy, if we lost capitalism, then, then, oh no, all hope will be lost. Sometimes we cling to things like that, right? We cling to worldly wisdom, worldly ideas. Now, those things can be helpful and good and, and enable us to freely communicate the gospel. And I'm grateful. I mean, really, really grateful. And I pray for the continuation of what we enjoy. But that's not our salvation. Paul says, where is the scholar of this age? Who's the scribe? Where's the wise man? Where's the debater of this age? What, what he's saying is that, that you know, these, these people don't have answers. That The talking heads of his day didn't have any answers, just like the talking heads of our day don't have any answers either. And, and the talking heads of our day might be a little different, but, but not terribly. Who are the philosophers of our day? Who are the politicians of our day? Who are the supposed great thinkers of our day? Where are they? What, are they solving all the problems that we have? Are they, are they bringing life to mankind? Are they... Meeting the biggest need that mankind has? Are they rescuing mankind from these things? He says, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the journalist? Where's the debater? Where's the talking head? Where's the talk show host of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's saying, show me these people. They don't have any, any wisdom that's solving any problems. A, a few years ago, a guy named Stephen Hawking, he's a, a great physicist, he, he died, and, but before he did, he had he'd written a book called A Brief History of Time, and, and he says something about trying to figure out life and the meaning for life, and he said, even if there's only one possible unified theory, it's just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? The usual approach of science constructing a mathematical model cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. He's grappling with it. Why do we exist even? He says, why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? Is the unified theory so compelling that it brings about its own existence, or does it need a creator? And if so, does he have any other effect on the universe? If we do discover a complete theory, it should be in time to be understandable by a broad principle, by everyone not just a few scientists, then we shall all, philosophers, scientists, and just ordinary people, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we in the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God. And then he goes on to say that, but we don't. But we don't understand. There's there's no answers in the world of philosophy there's no answers in the world of science, even though we're told all the time, trust the science. And the reality is, science will not save us. It can only prolong our lives, but it can't give us eternal life. Mathematics can't figure out how to solve the problem of man's sin. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Got him David Carlin. He says, Paul skewers those who refract their search for truth through the lens of human wisdom and derive their status from their expertise. And that's what happens today, right? Every, we, we esteem those who we think are smart. We esteem those who we think have it all together, who figured it out. We esteem those who, who have worldly success. We esteem those who seem to, seem to at least, have all the answers. We look for people with power, that's what the Jews did too. They looked for people with signs. Paul says, For the Jews demanded a sign. We want people who seem to be successful, seem to be powerful. That's what they wanted in, in that day as well. That's what they were following after, those who seem to be successful and powerful. And it says, The Greeks seek wisdom. They wanted people who, who seem smart, and they wanted people with PhDs or multiple degrees or people with Nobel Prizes. The Jews wanted all kinds of miracles, and Jesus did all kinds of miracles. The blind were given sight, the deaf heard, the mute spoke, the lame walked. Jesus healed every kind of disease, the dead were brought to life, but here's the problem. Then, you know what happened to Jesus? He didn't conform to their idea of what they thought a Messiah should be like. Because Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't conform to our idea of what we think he should be like. He doesn't submit to what we think he should do for us. He's not, he, he's not a, a showman. He doesn't do everything we want him to do. He doesn't give us great riches. He, those aren't what we look to. And so they deserted Jesus because he died. And he died on this instrument of torture. A cross to them, to the Jews, it was a sign of, of the utmost humiliation. This 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 form of torture, it was really seen as as condemnation of the person who hung on the cross, because cursed is everybody who hangs on a tree. The idea was foolish to them. They were seeking a sign, and he gave them the sign of the cross, a sign that was offensive. That doesn't seem very smart. And to the Greeks, they sought wisdom. They liked to speculate about all kinds of philosophers. They, they liked to, to hail their, their great philosophy history of you know, I mean, I thought Thales of Miletus and, and Pythagoras and Socrates and, and Plato and Aristotle. And the people didn't appreciate the wisdom and speak in philosophical terms. They were seen as unimpressive and weak. And see, Paul says, we bring this message that's it's weak. It, we, it's the foolishness of preaching, that's what he says, we bring the foolishness of preaching because it's not with great rhetoric. And Paul intentionally did not try to persuade them with rhetoric in his preaching. He, he brought the simple message of the gospel. And he, he wasn't trying to wow them with all the things that he did. He says, no, I want them to trust in the notion of the cross. But for all of the wisdom and learning of the Greeks, they never discovered the power to save, the power to rescue, the power to change hearts and minds. You see, you can know all the right stuff, but it doesn't transform your heart without the gospel. And the notion to the Greeks that, that, that they would have a God that was helpless and that died. After all, their hierarchy was it was organized around people. Gods were, were more powerful, right? The more powerful God was the greater God. So Zeus, he was the head of the gods because he was the most powerful God. So why would you have a God who seemed to give up all power. He had no earthly kingdom, and he died in the end. Not only did he die, he died the death of a criminal, a terrorist. In the Roman world, in the Greco-Roman world, only the terrorists would be killed on a cross. And it was actually illegal for a Roman citizen to be put to death. And so the idea that you would say, hey, by the way, This most hated form of torture that that not even a Roman citizen would ever be tortured on. This is the Savior of the world. (laughs) They would say that's ridiculous, that's foolish. The Greeks want a God to be reasonable to them. They want a God to do for them what they thought he should. I mean, we share the same idolatries today, don't we? The gospel, it's unreasonable to our thinking. It seems to lack power. The news we carry is that the Messiah, the Chosen One of God, the very Son of God, He came to earth as a helpless baby. He was born into lowly circumstances and poverty. He didn't have 15 degrees. He didn't have a PhD. He was born into an ignoble family. He was derided because they accused him of being born into adultery. They couldn't believe the miracle of the virgin birth. They when Jesus was at the height of all of his influence, doing all kinds of miracles, he preached a message that was so offensive that, that the 15,000, 20,000 people that were following him the day before, they all left him. He refused to rescue people through means of political power. He could have done that. He could have done that. He had a following. They were asking him, hey, when will you come and take power? When will you come and take over? When will you come and kick out the Romans? And he probably could have gathered quite a groundswell of people by doing all these works of power and by having this persuasive message. And yet he didn't do that. He says, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to eat of me. If you want to follow me, you have to drink of me. You have to die to yourself and feast on me. And they said, that's gross. That's offensive. They left. And then... He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. And then all his other friends, they left him. And then he he dies, an embarrassing, humiliating cross. He died for the sins of mankind, past, present, and future. He takes the wrath of God that all of mankind deserved. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was scourged for our healing he was brutalized to bring us peace he was punished so we might go free he was willingly subjected to the most gruesome horrific penalty this slow torturous bloody death on a cross so to the jews and greeks how would a wise god end up on the cross why would a wise god give up power people don't do that that's stupid Because in our world, we seek power, we seek influence, we seek wealth, we seek accolades. We want to seem smart. I don't know about you, but I I want people to think I'm smart. I want people to think I'm, I'm impressive. I want people to be impressed with me. That's what people want. That's what most of us desire in some way. We want to have some kind of credit to be able to take on our own, and the cross abolishes all that. It takes away any credit. It takes any, any self-sufficiency. It takes away our identity in ourselves and says, no, in yourself, you don't merit anything. You actually demerit everything. The cross seems foolish. And yet Paul says, we've always preached Christ crucified as the very basis for our new identity as Christians. Is that your identity? Is that what you're putting your identity in? Is that what you're putting your hope in? Or are you subtly, you know what, hey, this idea, I am all about that, and you're letting that idea become higher to you than the idea of Christ crucified? Are you letting the idea of some school of thought or some method, um, some way of thinking, some social cause, are you letting those things take precedence for you? Are you letting your political affiliation take precedence? Are you letting any of these things take precedence for you, or are you putting your hope in weakness, in death. The world didn't know God through wisdom, and it still doesn't, because the world's wisdom is really foolishness, is what Paul says. He says the world's wisdom is really foolishness, but the word of the cross is the power of God. That's what he's saying, the word of the cross is the power of God. What seems like wisdom is really foolishness, but the word of the cross is the power of God. Now, you might might expect Paul to contrast. He says the, the foolishness of the world and he says no well, no he contrasts that not with wisdom of God he, he contrasts it with the power of God because the wisdom of God is, is seen in the effect that the cross is powerful it has power to change the cross brings people out of death and into life the cross kills our old sin nature the cross says you know what we we have died with Christ and now we've been raised to new life it brings us out of darkness and into life it delivers us from sin and gives us freedom from sin And we're in the midst of continually being saved. That's what the cross does. That's why Paul says it's for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now, what do you mean when he says being saved? I thought we already were saved. If you put your trust in Jesus, then aren't you already saved? Well, yes, in one sense you are. But I love the way an old commentator put it. He says, if you think about it, if you have a ship that's going down hundreds of miles away from shore in the middle of the ocean, and that ship is going down, and everybody's about to drown, and and a rescue boat comes up, and they pull those people off the The ship that's going down, well, those people have been rescued, they've been saved, but they're still hundreds of miles away from shore. And so they're put into this lifeboat, and then they travel, and it takes a long time to go in a lifeboat, hundreds of miles to shore. And so they're in the process of being saved, and they're looking forward to that one day when they ultimately will meet the land. And that's what it's like for us as Christians. We've, we've been rescued. We've been brought out of death, brought out of darkness, and yet now he's in the process of carrying us to our final destination. And so in the midst of all of that, the cross is actually the power of God for our prior salvation and continued saving. The process isn't complete, but the process is Sure. He says in verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Through the ages, we've come up with all kinds of philosophies, all kinds of theories, all kinds of religions, all seeking to answer and to solve the the fundamental problem. Even, Even as Stephen Hawking admitted, you know, philosophy seeks to do that, mathematics seeks to do that, science seeks to do that, to answer the questions, but really No theory, no philosophy, no system, no ideology brings about true and lasting heart change. You see, God created mankind to trust in Him and His Word. And trusting in any other means leads to death. God wants us to to rely on Him, to trust in Him, to trust in His wisdom. So God uses what the church in Corinth and the Greco Roman culture around would have considered weak or foolish the preaching of the cross. The preaching the cross doesn't rely on logic or rhetorical skills. It's, it's not simplistic, but it's simple. It's counterintuitive. It says, stop trusting in yourself. You will never be good enough on your own to be acceptable before God. That's an offensive message, right? Because I, I want some merit. I don't like hearing that I won't be, ever be good enough on my own apart from God. I, I just want to have a little bit of confidence in myself. The message of the cross says, no, it's got nothing to do with our wisdom. And, and actually, the message of the cross says, you have to give up all hope in your ability to figure it out. The message of the cross says, stop working to try to attain greatness. Stop trying to, to accumulate success and, and put your confidence in that. The message of the cross says, die to that idea. It's counterintuitive. It goes against what makes sense to us. It's not a meritocracy. God never be, planned for people to be saved by figuring things out on their own or by understanding. You see, his plan all along was to save mankind through the word of the cross, is what he says. The word, the wisdom of the cross, the, this foolishness of preaching. You know, God was pleased to save mankind this way, but it seems like what we preach is folly And that's what Paul was hearing, not only what he was saying, but how he was saying it, this foolishness of preaching. It, It seems silly. Could God rescue and save anybody through any of that? Well, He says in verse 24, look down your Bibles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, God in his wisdom made a way for us to see that in all our wisdom we can't ever change ourselves we can't ever be good enough we can't ever be free from failing no matter how hard we try we will fail no matter how much success we have we'll never be impressive and have enough merit and favor to warrant god's approval of us and that's the message that we preach christ crucified gordon fee says that the jews and the greeks they illustrate the basic idolatries of humanity God must function as the all powerful or the all wise, but always in terms of our best interests. Power on our behalf, wisdom like ours. For both, the ultimate idolatry is that of insisting that God conform to our own prior views as to how the God who makes sense ought to do things. It's this preaching of the cross, it's the very power and wisdom of God, but it seems counterintuitive. We live by dying? We succeed by giving everything up? He says, The foolishness of God in verse 25 is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What he's saying is the truly weak things are, are all of the ways that mankind has come up to save themselves. They haven't worked out so far. They're not going to work out. Mankind will never be able to rescue themselves. You know why? Because philosophy is weak. The law is weak. The best rhetoric is weak. Man's ideologies are weak. But the cross is more powerful than all the strength of men. The so-called weakness of God. What seems like foolishness to the world, it's really Wisdom. But what what kind of message, what kind of ideology are you looking for? What kind of ism are you hoping in to rescue mankind? It can often be revealed, and what would happen if those things were taken away from us? Just ask yourself that. Okay, what if that thing that I'm working for the most was completely taken away from me? What if that ideology that I hold on to so strongly, what if that was demolished? What if all that I'm trusting in fell apart? Where would I really be looking for salvation? How would I react? And then maybe ask yourself, well, is it, is, if I say that I'm trusting in the cross of Jesus Christ and that alone, then is that reflected in what I talk about? If, if I believe it, then why am I hesitant to share it? We have to be wary of trusting in any human ideology or system or method to rescue humanity and bring about heart change. That's what Paul's saying. Be wary of of, of elevating our own wisdom above God's wisdom. It's not that God doesn't want us to think. He actually created us as thinking individuals. But he doesn't want us to trust in our ability. He wants to trust in his wisdom. Nothing explains human origins like God's word. Nothing explains the human condition like our own Bible. Nothing, nothing explains the problems of the human heart and mind like God's Word does. Nothing explains how we can live happy and healthy lives like God's Word does. Nothing explains how to parent or love our spouse, or relate to the people or love other people like God's Word does. The whole Bible. It's pointed though to there's there's only one way we can we can live for God. There's only one way we can be reconciled to Him, and that's through the cross of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is a life that begins through death, and it, and it begins and hopes in the death of Christ. Can't achieve salvation through our own wisdom and efforts. Paul saying believing the cross is our only method of the salvation. So where are you believing? Where are you hoping? On the cross, Jesus did for us what we can never do for ourselves. What shapes your thinking? How do you know? Is it revealed in what you spend your time on? Is that what you're hoping in? Is it revealed in where you look for for worth? What happens when your worth and value are challenged? What happens when you fail? What happens when you succeed? Where do you look for affirmation and attention? Are you drawn continually to seeing if somebody commented on your Instagram or your Facebook, your Twitter, or whatever you're using now. The message of the cross is that you you were so lost you couldn't rescue yourself. It's that you were too weak, you were too unable, that you could not obey God fully and completely on your own. The message of the cross is that you were separated from God and there was no way you could be reconciled to him because of your sins, your self-reliance were a barrier to that. The message of the cross is that you needed someone else to die. In fact, you needed the very Son of God to die for you because you couldn't pay enough to satisfy all that your sin demanded. The message of the cross is that God so loved you that he sent his only Son Jesus loved you so much that he endured all that the cross meant. Being forsaken, being humiliated, dying the death of a terrorist. The message of the cross is that when he died, though, he said, it is finished. All of your sins have been paid for. That's the message of the cross. That's the power of the cross. It's finished. God has reconciled you to himself through Jesus. It's finished. No more wrath remains. It's finished. He's taken all of your nakedness, your shame, your weakness, your humiliation. He's taken all of your abandonment issues. He's taken all of your unworthiness. He's taken all of your self-esteem issues. He's, he's done that all on himself. It's finished. And the message of the cross is that he's given up everything to give you everything in him. Church, may we believe that message. May we trust that message. May we never look anywhere else May we trust no other wisdom. Amen? Philip, you go ahead and come up with a band. We'll pray, and if we'll sing in response.